Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have promised that the word that goes out from your mouth will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And so we pray now that you would accomplish your good purposes in the hearts of us, your people, through the preaching of your holy word this evening. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please open your Bibles again to Daniel chapter 11, and I'll just be uh, ask you to be following along as we work our way through the passage tonight, page 748 on the Pew Bibles. Many people preface sermons on this chapter of Daniel, uh, recognizing that it is full of historical details, claiming to know that most people are uninterested in history. Their eyes are sure to glaze over at all these historical details. And yet, one of the surprise hit podcasts of recent years is Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. I don't know if you've heard about it, I don't know if you know about it, but each episode runs for five or six hours. And he may take five or six episodes to cover one important conflict in history like the fall of the Roman Republic and its transformation into the Roman Empire. He's also done a series on the rise and fall of the Persian Empire, including the reign of King Cyrus, the very time period during which Daniel is living, in which he received this very revelation. But Dan Carlin and his hit podcast has shown that when history is told rightly, looking at the intimate details, the intrigue, the plots, the hidden motives, history comes to life, and people love to hear history told in this way. And the same is true of this chapter when you look at what it is really telling us about. Yes, there are many details, but if you study the history of these events, it is full of very human drama, rich life happening here. And the amazing thing here is that this wasn't history for Daniel. Here the angel foretells to Daniel what would come to pass over the next 400 years. And then he jumps forward and he shows this final figure, which how how the final figure here, the, the last king, is prefiguring a future antichrist to come, one who is still future for us today. And so as we work our way through this passage tonight, we will have an opportunity to see how God has shown that even as kingdoms rise and fall, as tyrants carry out their wars, as they uh, put into place their sinister plots, their persecutions, the Lord rules over it all. He is the God who reigns over history, who sets the end from the beginning, and nothing can thwart his plans for his people. And this is ultimately the truth that you must rest in when pandemics come, when wars rage around you, when governments may topple and fall. Very little is certain in this life. But what is certain is that the Lord remains on his throne, that he is in control through it all. And so you do not need to fear because you can trust in him. So we'll work our way through our passage section by section And as we do so, we'll be considering what are the lessons the Lord has to teach us here in this passage. But first, let's recall the context of our passage last time in chapter 10. The setting was the third year of King Darius. We identified this with King Cyrus of Persia. 
And so this is just two years after his great proclamation in which the Jews were given freedom to return from exile to the promised land, free to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And yet it's likely that Daniel had just received the news that even though they've returned, they've hit resistance. Things are not so easy back in their homeland. And so he fasts, he prays for three weeks, he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord has responded with his angel. And we saw last time how the angel, the the veil was pulled back for Daniel to see the spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes of history. And then the angel launches into this speech, and here's how it was described at the beginning of chapter 10. The word was true, and it was a great conflict. That's the description of what we have here in in chapter 11. Daniel was distressed that the people had recently arrived back in the land and they were facing conflict, but here the Lord shows that things are not necessarily going to settle down. Wars and conflict will continue. And though no exact timeline is given to Daniel, it's clear enough just by reading the account here that many, many generations are in view. And we now can look back and we can compare it to the extra biblical history and we see that this takes place over centuries. But the fact is that God knows it all in advance. He has fixed everything according to his timeline and he shows it is all under his control. And so nothing needs to come as a surprise to his people because nothing is a surprise to God. Let's dive in, looking at the first four verses. These describe the history of the Persian and then the Greek empires. In verse 1, we get a little bit of this, more of this behind-the-scenes history. The angel at first is talking about himself. And he, he goes back two years previously, in the first year of Darius's reign, how the angel himself confirmed and strengthened him. But then, from verse 2 forward, everything is looking forward. Everything is a prediction. Everything a foretelling of future history. If you read the critical commentaries from the liberal scholars, they don't believe this is possible. They don't believe in a God who foretells and who knows and foretells the future. They call this whole section prophecy after the fact. It's written by a later author who already knows the history and he writes the prophecy after the fact to make it look like prophecy. Their claims do not stand. There are many marks of authenticity to show that this book, this whole book of Daniel, is the true word of God. To defend God's word from these critics, and the simple fact is that they are driven by their unbelief. From our perspective, this chapter, the incredible accuracy of this chapter, is an evidence of the reliability, the trustworthiness of God's word. And so in verse 2 we read, Behold, Three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. This fourth king described here is Xerxes, or you may know him from as the name Hasuerus from the book of Esther. He truly was the greatest, the richest of all the Persian kings, where the empire went into decline after him. Xerxes campaigned as far as Greece. He famously fought the 300 Spartans led by King Leonidas at Thermopylae. And he triumphed there over those mighty 300, but at great cost. But ultimately, the Persian campaigns in Greece, they were not terribly successful. 
But they do fulfill the prophecy of stirring up the Greeks and stirring up others against the Greeks. And so verse 3 tells us of the time when the tides of history turn, when the Greeks rise up and then conquer the Persians. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity. And these verses describe the swift rise of the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. He conquered the entire known world at that time, including Persia and all the way to India in just 10 years. The story is told how he reached India and he wept because there was nowhere else to conquer. He died at the young age of 32 and he left behind no heir to succeed him. When he died, his wife was pregnant. But a baby who was not yet born could not succeed him. And so his generals fought over his kingdom and it was divided up into four parts. In chapter 7, Daniel's vision in chapter 7, the breaking up of this Greek kingdom, it was represented as a, by a beast with four heads. In chapter 8, he had another vision. There, a great, the goat's great horn was broken. That was the fall of Alexander. And then four more uh, horns grew up, one facing each direction of the compass. So these first four verses here, they cover from 539 B.C. to the death of Alexander in 324 B.C., spanning almost a little over two centuries. Now, as we move forward, the prophecy focuses on just two parts of this now divided Greek empire. The Seleucid Empire, described as the kings in the north, ruled from Babylon, and the Ptolemies, the Ptolemaic Empire, the kings in the south, based in Egypt. Now, recall in all this, this is a a sacred foretelling of history for God's people, many of whom who had now returned to the promised land of Israel— And so these are the two dynasties who will war back and forth over the promised land. And so that's what verses 5 forward tell us of the repeated wars between the kings of the north and the south. And Israel is there caught in the middle. Now verse 5 starts out with the king of the south and it says he was the stronger of the two. The land of Israel was occupied at this time by Ptolemy I based in the south in Egypt. And then verses 6 and 7, they detail this court intrigue, an alliance that is forged through marriage. The daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. This agreement is a marriage alliance. It was ending a war that was being fought between north and south at that time. But what's not told here in verse 6 is that the king of the north, Antiochus II, he was already married. He needed to divorce his wife, Laodice to send her into exile along with her children in order to bury Berenice, the daughter of the king of the south. Verse 6 here, it predicts that this marriage alliance will fail, as it did spectacularly. You can imagine, Laodice was not happy being divorced and sent into exile. She expected her son to be the next king. She didn't want to be replaced She did not want her son, the heir, to be replaced. She she bided her time. She waited until she had the opportunity. And when the opportunity came, she had the new queen, Berenice, and her son, as well as the king, all poisoned. And then her son, the rightful heir, was declared the new king. 
Well, what do you think the king of the south thought about this? By now, the new king of the south was the brother of the murdered queen, Bernice. He was the one ruling, and as foretold here in verse 7, he was not happy to have his sister, the linchpin of the marriage alliance between north and south, murder. And so we read verse 7, He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. So the alliance breaks down. The war starts up again. Intrigue, drama, plots continue all exactly as the Lord foretold. And as you read on battles between north and south, they rage back and forth. And we can't analyze every line tonight. We can't identify every king and every ruler. Verses 13 to 16 identify the campaign when finally the king of the north comes to rule over the land of Israel. He seizes uh, the land from the Ptolemies. And verse 14, in the midst of this, it mentions for the first time, mentions explicitly the Jews. It says that violent ones from your people, violent Jews would rise up during the midst of this time of of transfer from, from the south to the north, ruling over Israel. And while we don't have any extra biblical history to, to know with exact certainty how this prophecy was fulfilled, we know it must have been fulfilled. Overall, this section was given so that God's people would know that though their rulers would change from Ptolemy to Seleucid, this was not to be a surprise. It was certainly no surprise to God. Then in verse 17, we see another attempted scheme involving a marriage, a marriage alliance. This time, the daughter of the king of the north is given to the king of the south. And the hope here is that she would sway him, that she would bring the south under the rule of the north, or perhaps it would be her son, the, the heir. He would, would bring the south under the influence and the power of the north and bring destruction to the south. But as predicted here in God's word, this plan also failed. This daughter, the one who married into the south, her name was Cleopatra I. She was loyal to her husband, loyal to the south, not to her father and the north. And if you recognize that name, Cleopatra... This is not the one you perhaps know from history, the Cleopatra who was involved with Julius Caesar, Mark Antony. That was the great, 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 great granddaughter of this one. She was actually the last ruler of the Ptolemaic Empire under whom it fell ultimately to Rome. And so we have here verses 1 through 4 cover 200 years of history, verses 5 to 20, another 150 years of history. Now the next 15 verses, zoom in. They cover only about 12 years, just one ruler. But these 12 years are important because God needed to warn his people about a coming storm so that they could brace themselves for impact. And also so that they would know that this storm would not last forever. Verse 21 introduces a character that we have already seen in Daniel. As he was described extensively in chapter 8 as the little horn who boasted great things. Here we see again Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. Let me read verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Note the very first word used to describe him here, a contemptible, or it could be translated a despised, a despicable person. He claimed 
the blasphemous title Epiphanes, meaning God manifest. But his, critic, his critics called him Epimenes, behind his back. Epimenes meaning madman. And that described his personality. He was, in some ways, like a mad genius. He could be completely unpredictable, going from being seemingly capable, energetic, cunning, at times even generous, while at other times he could be completely erratic and tyrannical. And how did he become king? It's mentioned here in verse 21. The word translated flatteries, it literally means slipperiness. It's probably better translated here intrigue, and there was certainly intrigue involved in his rise to power. As it says here, royal majesty was not given to him. He seized it. His brother, King Seleucus IV, was murdered, and Antiochus was not the heir. He was the brother. Seleucus had two sons in line for the throne before him, but the first in line, Demetrius I, he had, was being held hostage in Rome. So Antiochus' uncle, he ruled as the beneficent regent. Now the documentation is uncertain, but it appears that what he did was he married his deceased brother's wife, and then he formally adopted both heirs as his sons. But he continued to rule as regent. But then the younger son was murdered, most likely on his secret orders. Now outwardly, he was outraged. He had the murderer put to death. But he used that as the occasion to declare himself no longer regent, but now as the king ruling in his own right. And so he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by intrigue. Now the verses that follow tell of his military victories. He had two campaigns against Egypt, the first of which was quite successful. He returned with great plunder. But we read in verse 28 what he did on his return. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. At this time, Antiochus had already been meddling in the affairs of God's people. He had already twice sold off the office of the high priest to the highest bidder. First to one high bidder, and then he got outbid, and he was replaced. And so as he passed through Jerusalem, the former high priest led a revolt, which Antiochus brutally suppressed and slaughtered many people. As further punishment, he went on to plunder the temple. He took the table for the bread of the presence, the golden lampstand, the golden censers, the cups for drink offerings, the curtain, the golden decorations for the entrance of the temple. Uh, you think that's bad, but he was just getting started. We go on to read in verses 29 and 30 of his second campaign into Egypt. He was able to conquer most of Egypt this a second time. But this time we see that ships of Kittim come. And this is referring to a fleet of Roman ships who came to support the Tommies. The Roman general came to Antiochus with a letter from the Roman Senate. And it's told that he drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus and he demanded him to make up his mind before he left the circuit. Make up your mind whether or not you will withdraw from Egypt. And if not, the Roman Senate will declare war on you. And it says in verse 30, he was afraid, he withdrew, he did not want to face all the might of Rome. Now you could imagine the mindset of this great, powerful ruler, this great bully who went home this time humiliated. This time, instead of going home with great riches, he went home with no plunder at all. And he decided to take out 
his rage full force on those who could not resist him, on the Jews. And so we read verse 31, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. He dedicated it as a temple to Zeus. He abolished the regular burnt offering. He abolished the Sabbath. They were not allowed to keep the Sabbath. He abolished the annual festivals and commanded the people to celebrate the Greek religious festivals instead. The abomination that makes desolate, it refers either to the idol of Zeus that he placed in the temple or perhaps more likely to the swine that he offered to Zeus on the pagan altar on top of the temple's altar. In both ways, God's temple was utterly desecrated. And through this all, as the people objected strenuously, he slaughtered thousands upon thousands of Jews. His goal was to abolish Judaism altogether, to make the Jews into Greeks. Yet we see God's people did not give in. Verse 32, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. This is referring to the Maccabean revolt started by Matthias and led by his sons, Judas Maccabee and his brothers. They resisted Antiochus. They would go on to restore the kingship to the Jews, to rededicate the temple, what is still celebrated today by Jews, the festival of Hanukkah. And this section from verses verse 20 to 35, it's written to prepare God's people for this time of great persecution under Antiochus. And while perhaps not as bad as the fall of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar, these were extremely dark times and difficult days for God's people. And yet, knowing God's word, knowing what had been revealed to Daniel, knowing that even this great disaster would come to an end, knowing that the Lord's was still ruling history for his people was the way that his people could stand firm and continue to be faithful. As we continue into verse 36, the final section here, there is a, trans, a transition. The angel continues to describe a king who is in many ways like Antiochus, but these prophecies were not historically fulfilled by him. And so almost all commentators have concluded that these verses are describing one who is like Antiochus, but who is still to come, a final Antichrist. And this matches with other things that we've seen in the book of Daniel. For Antiochus is described as the little horn in chapter 8. But there's another little horn in chapter 7, the vision there. Another little horn who has not yet come. And the use of this same imagery in both places cannot be an accident. We also see that both in verse 35 and verse 40 and in the final section of the vision in chapter 12, there are references to the time of the end. And chapter 12 goes on to refer to the final resurrection at the last day. And so even though the majority of this vision is describing the events from 539 up to 163 B.C., I believe that this final section uh, from 36 to 45, it's describing jumping forward to the end of history. And so this final ruler is one like the enemy of God's people, Antiochus, 
But it is now one who is like Antiochus, but in an exaggerated form, taken to an extreme. And so what is he like? We see his quest for autonomy in verse 36, and the king shall do as he wills. Then we see his self-exaltation, his blasphemy, as we continue to read. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. Now, he doesn't simply claim divine status for himself like Antiochus, but actually claims to be superior to all gods, superiority to the Lord God himself. As it says in verse 37, he shall magnify himself above all. Now, Paul is actually drawing on these verses when he describes the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. This is another reason we believe this describes uh, the final Antichrist. Where Paul writes, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, the day of Christ's return, unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God, or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, interestingly, as we read on, although he rejects all other gods, exalts himself above everything, verse 38 describes himself as honoring the God of fortresses. In other words, he loves military might. And then we get a picture in verses 40 to 45 of a final, a final conflict. The king has several military victories, but it goes on and we get in verse 45 his ultimate downfall. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, Mount Zion, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. As mighty and powerful as this ruler is, he is defeated, he is helpless in the end. We match this up with other descriptions of the final conflict between Christ and and the Antichrist in the New Testament, as we read in Second Thessalonians 2.8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And so at the end of history, no enemy can stand before the might of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we have this warning of one who is coming. We see all this including the horrific blasphemy, the persecution, the military triumphs, but ultimately the final defeat of the Antichrist. All this is planned by God. Or even as we read in verse 36, he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. It is told to you ahead of time so that you can be ready. Let me just summarize. I've said some of these things as we've gone along, but let me summarize. What are some of the takeaways, the lessons we can learn from this passage? The incredible fulfillment of all the detailed prophecies in this passage, and I've only scratched the surface with some of the highlights tonight. I encourage you to study these things in more detail because every line of these verses um, has been fulfilled up to verse 36. I encourage you to study that, but the incredible fulfillment is a testimony to the reliability of the word of God. God's word is true, and you can trust it every single word. This is also a reminder, as we see here, that wars come and go. The kingdoms of this world 
The kings and their kingdoms, they rise and they fall. But let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12, 28. And as Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. When the kingdoms of this world rage and shake, do not live in fear. But hold on to Christ. Look to him in faith and know that God is always on the throne. He is reigning still. There will be those who oppose Christ's church. Many antichrists have come, and many more will come, and there will be one great final antichrist, as Scripture teaches us here. But do not fear, for Christ is on the throne. God is on the throne. Christ is at his right hand, and God is putting all his enemies under Christ's feet. And as we saw here, the people who know their God shall stand firm. So fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes on him as we come to his table this evening, and he will strengthen you to stand firm. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is sovereign over all of history. We thank you and praise you that the heart of the king of every ruler is like a stream of water in your hand, which you direct wherever you will. And so, although sometimes it seems like history is spinning out of control, we are confident that is not true. Nothing is happening that you are not directing and in control of in every way. And so help us to always take our confidence in your sovereignty over everything that happens in our lives. Help us, Lord, to always trust in you, to never fear, and to give you thanks always that we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, an eternal kingdom in which we will dwell with you forever. And so for this, we give you thanks. It is our eternal hope. And we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.